Welcome to CSG Politics. Before I get started on today's CSG Politics, I'd like to talk to you about Blanchard Family Wines, located between 18th and 19th in Blake and Wazee, in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. Um, I'm going to have a kind of a neat thing coming up here where I'm going to be giving away uh, some virtual wine tastings for Blanchard. Uh, so uh, stay tuned. Those things are extremely popular. So uh, when I get that, I will let you guys uh, uh, kind of, I'll think of a contest. Uh, maybe maybe, uh, maybe uh, my co-host here and I will figure out something to, uh, a cool thing so we can give it away. Um, but, you know, look, Blanche Family Wines, as you know, it's my favorite place, one of my favorite places in Denver, um, 2017 Cabernet, which I have uh, participated in drinking uh, on many a podcast. Of course, I don't do it on this particular podcast because we record it in the morning, but uh, there have been some uh, Gen X music shows that uh, I have been enjoying a, a glass or two or three uh, while the recording of the podcast is going on. It's one of my favorites, but grapes from Sonoma County, California, they obviously it's Pinot is their specialty. Um, they got some blends. They got a partnership with uh three Western Slope wineries, uh, two of which are, one's called Restoration, one's called Storm Cellars. Storm Cellars uh, specializes in Rieslings, which is kind of the varietal of the Western Slope. Most of what they produce out there is, uh, is a Riesling, but they do have some reds, which is what Restoration uh, specializes in. Uh, really, it is a local business and not local businesses need your support. You can go to bfwdenver.com and get yourself a virtual wine tasting, uh, or you can buy yourself a uh, one of the bottles that they have on there. Um, like I said, 2017 Cabernet, it's really good. Um, but you can go through any, all of these, get them. They do delivery, they do shipment, and you can pick it up curbside. Um, restricted dining, I think they wait, I think, I think it's up to 50% capacity on the five-star rating here in Denver. Uh, of course, they have outdoor seating in uh, the dairy block, but <laughs> it is like sub-Arctic right now. So I, I would imagine that you would your, your choice would be to go to beefedupyourdenver.com and just get yourself a bottle so you don't have to uh, uh, experience this until uh, the weather gets better. Once again, they're located between uh, 18th and 19th in Blake and Wazee beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. Um, They're on Facebook and Instagram under Blanchard Family Guides. When you go in, tell them Jeff Morton from CSU Podcast sent you there. Everybody. Thank you all for joining us on CSG Politics. Uh, joining me, as always, located in not New Mexico, uh, my co-host on this particular adventure, uh, the man who has been here for most of the CSG podcasts, uh, other than the ones where I suddenly like have to interview someone who is involved with politics. It is my friend, Pat Guerin. Hello, Pat. Good day, sir. It's a uh, it's a frozen tundra here, not New Mexico as well. Oh my God, it is frigid. I woke up last night. At one point, I'm like, I, I this is this is what this is what my body is like telling me. This is hell. 
gets every joint yeah. in my body hurt. And it was warm uh, in, in where I was. It was just the barometric pressure just crashes and you're like, oh, this is, this is awful. But of course, this is old man problems. So. Well, that's true. We're all starting to experience those in different ways. But uh, right. yes, uh, sub-zero temperatures definitely exacerbate them. So maybe well, it is just hell freezing over the... It, well, it could be. It could be. I mean, it's been a hellacious year, let's face it. Um, uh, <laughs> There's no doubt. Uh, well, it's been a hellacious four years. And, and in that spirit, um, <laughs> we, we had a, uh, a, a major historic event happened this last week that uh, Pat and I will get into. I don't need to be coy. It was the second impeachment of Donald John Trump um, and former president. And let's everyone say former president because he really hates that. He really hates being referred to as former president for whatever reason. Uh, maybe it's because he's a raging narcissist. Um, but before we get to that, we do a news segment and we're going to only cover one item this time. And it was the um, rather interesting travails of uh, one White House press staffer, um, T.J. Ducklow, who, uh, for the little bit of a backstory here, there was an article that came out, I believe, the week before last on, in People magazine, uh, uh, essaying T.J. Ducklow, uh, and his relationship. Now, keep in mind, TJ Ducklow has stage four lung cancer. Um, and this is kind of hovering over this whole episode I'm talking about. But there was a, a uh, article that came out in People talking about his relationship with an Axios um, reporter. Um, I think they're, they're boyfriend, girlfriend, or married. I, th- I, think they, I think they're just in a relationship, not official. And this was discovered by Politico magazine. There's some question as to whether uh, Ducklow and this this lady um, leaked it to people in order to get ahead of the story uh, that was coming. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, early last week, there comes a a news drop, um, which really didn't concern anyone outside of the Beltway uh, and uh, old Patrick and I. But... (laughs) Most other people don't care about this shit. Um, it, it was leaked Thanks by... Thanks for listening. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, it was leaked by Politico that there was this off-the-record uh, conversation between uh, um, Ducklow and... Well, conversation. It was more of a yelling and screaming match with, with Ducklow and the someone for Politico where he, where T.J. Ducklow threatens uh, the person's job and then tell them, tells them they're not fuckable, which is which is not probably where you want to go and when you're conversing with someone who is in the media. And this came out, this was leaked. Ducklow was uh, suspended for a week without pay. And then he, a day later, he handed in his resignation. And that is where we stand right now. Um, Pat, you and I were talking about this before the podcast. Um, obviously, on the scale of things that actually matter, uh, there was an impeachment yesterday. Um, and uh, a, a verdict that came down yesterday. Obviously, in the scale of things, it's way down the list. But when you were talking about political, quote-unquote, scandals, this is more akin to things that we would see in other eras of, of presidential politics than, in, uh, say, during the Trump era. 
Well, it definitely fits into my dream uh, program of making politics boring again, because this was the excitement that should come out of like a political environment, something that's basically like an HR type issue right. um, with, with a dusting of gossip that, that can kind of spin up the press corps for a couple of days and usually anger um, a president because it distracts them briefly or they get asked a question or two about it on their way to the, the chopper or whatever. Right. Um, so it is, a th it is a throwback political scandal um, of which also the hallmark of those is they don't really have a lot of lasting political impact. And so it's a fleeting sort of thing. Usually the staffer um, or gets fired or resigns at some point. We forget about them and I'll move on. Um, I will say, um, you know, the, the, the sort of leak about his conversation with the reporter for Politico, um, you know, was wildly inappropriate. You shouldn't be talking to people like that. And right. uh, he should know better. And if you're going to engage in relationships amongst people in Washington, you know that they're go that's going to be fodder for sort of gossip and, right. and slash reporting. Um, and, you know, sometimes I'm confused by this sort of like unwritten laws or ethics of press um, and uh, and sort of press coverage person <laughs> relationships where it's like, you know, Politico was pissed that uh, they, they leaked the story to people after they approached them and told them they were working on the story. And I know that there's like this dangerous sort of time between you've done your reporting, you've com basically completed the construct of the story, and then you reach out to the subject for comment. Because at that point, now they know the story's coming, you know? Right. And if you go back to all the big stories over the years, these moments are huge. Like, you know, when they finally called Harvey Weinstein, and was like, hey, we're running this story. Care to comment? You know, now they know that the screws are coming, and then they're chasing Ronan Farrow all over town and, you know, causing all right. sorts of... Uh, um, James Bourne, or um, not James Bourne, but anyway, Bourne Identity style. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah. Jason, Jason Bourne. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry to <laughs> mess that up. But anyway, uh, so, you know, uh, this could normally fall under the category of I don't care because I don't. Um, I am sympathetic to TJ Ducklow because, as you mentioned, I mean, he was an early staffer of the Biden campaign going back to their very early days of being a spokesman for them. And then he had to take a back seat because all of a sudden he was diagnosed, as you mentioned, with lung cancer right. and, uh, and, and then had to be sort of sidelined for some time. And then it was sort of triumphant when they won. And, and he, you know, I kind of would have thinking he may have been the press secretary or something, you know, um, after that, but what, you know, what do I know about who they choose for those things? And so, um, it's, uh, it's an unfortunate end for him, but you know, he needs to be responsible for his behavior right. and the, the, the immediate, this is where, this is where it got to the political aspect where I became uncomfortable with it was first of all, um, the white house obviously knew about this for several weeks and did not announce any of that, um, uh, discipline until Politico, you know, released all the off the record conversations and, and his unloading on him. And then they offered as a solution or as a punishment, the one week of suspension without pay, which, you know, is sort of token in my opinion, right. but then that he wouldn't be involved with Politico at all, which essentially is punishing Politico. I mean, it's like, if you have a, if you are a white house, you know, press member of the white house press and you are trying to get comment from someone, it's not always going to be the press secretary. It's often right. going to be a staffer. And so if you can't use them as a source because he treated one of your colleagues inappropriately, then that is 
uh, unfair. And then also, one of the things that I admire about Joe Biden is his sort of sense of right and wrong. And the two things that I remember about him that really underscored this was, there's a letter that um, it floats around the internet nowadays, but he, uh, when he was vice president, he sent out a letter to his staff that said, that essentially, I'm just going to summarize, that he expected the, his staffers to um, have a life outside of their job. And that if he ever heard that a person missed like a family obligation, a wedding, an anniversary, something like that for work, that he was going to be personally disappointed about it. And essentially telling them that, you know, hey, I'm a family guy. I want you people to, you know, experience the things that are important to you. And right. this job is not more important than that. And I just, that speaks volumes about uh, um, him as a man, in my opinion. And then on inauguration day and his address to his staff, he said, you know, if you treat people disrespectfully or inappropriately, then I will fire you on the spot. And this put that to the test to a certain extent, and he was definitely getting called out about it uh, a lot by the press. The press really enjoyed this opportunity to be sort of self-righteous. Um, and uh, and so, you know, it's almost like they need, they should have just fired him in order to cement that policy and that mode of differentiation uh, between what this administration will tolerate and you know, the Corey Lewandowski and others of the previous administration's level of tolerance. And so uh, hopefully now, you know, this is a scandal that dies, that it's just kind of becomes something that is part of the the gossip of the, the you know, the inside the Beltway crowd and the Uber nerds like us. And then, you know, we move on to other things. And the next, the next um, features in these episodes of making politics boring again are far more around policies or around spats with the opposition party or um or things like that so that's well, I, uh that's my take yeah let me let me throw this out i i, I think i think you there's enough wiggle room to have the baseline acknowledgement that ducklow's behavior was awful uh what he said was terrible um no one should no press person should have to be uh, their fuckability questioned. Okay, that's a very Trump thing. Um, there is, there's none of that should happen. Uh, it was abusive, awful behavior, um, notwithstanding his stage four lung cancer is just, just as a baseline, that's bad. What concerns me is Politico's motives in this, like we're almost seem to be just if not necessarily because this person was berated by TJ Ducklow, what it, but it was that there was a scoop that was undermined. <laughs> and I, I, I just, I, I'm uncomfortable with that, you know, just in the general sense. And I, I, you know, maybe ascribing greater or lesser motives to a, a press outlet and, Look, Politico's got its problems, but I was I was just fascinated reading this and how the framing of this became a moral in judgment on the Biden White House, and uh, I think they were slow to react to it. And that's 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 this is the first test on that that you hope they learn from this. Um, but it was also framed in a greater way. And there was a bunch of, Olivia Nuzzi comes out there and she just starts berating people on Twitter about it. Just like uh, talking about how this is awful that the Biden White House let this happen. 
um, there was this circling of the wagons. And as you were talking about, it was the self-righteousness of the media, which let's face it, we all, I mean, we're not technically media, but there is just that people will not miss out on a chance to being uh, self-righteous about something. Like I said, the baseline of this is that Declo's behavior was reprehensible. It was awful. And you could, you could say that what eventually happened, his resignation was the inevitable result of what was going to happen. But at the, at the same time, you just look at what Politico did and, you know, Sam uh, Stein, you know, let me pull up this tweet that I uh, sent you this morning and it made me really uncomfortable. Um, it, it was, it was a, it was a tweet uh, four days ago when this was breaking down, was coming out, breaking down. Um, and uh, Sam Stein says, dear press hands, I understand it's tempting to try to get ahead of a seemingly bad story by feeding it to another outlet that will handle it kindly. It may even seem strategic, but the short-term gain you will feel will be undone by the longer-term damage from the act. Don't do it. It's almost like you got what was coming to you kind of, kind of BS. And I don't, I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily comfortable with that. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, it's the, the press is also taking a moment to uh, uh, be excited about reverting back to like the old ways of getting scoops and potentially scandalous scoops and, you know, um, running with them and, you know, getting sort of credit for it, you know, sort of like Matt Drudge style back in the Clinton years. Um, you know, the, the, the reality is, is like, um, if you, I've worked in a lot of, for a lot of big corporations, not a lot. I've worked for big corporations uh, in the past. And um, if, a, if a person ever spoke to an employee or a, a customer or an outside source um, with the sort of language and demeanor that uh, Ducklow did, uh, they'd be fired. And so I don't think there's any doubt that as soon as the White House found out about it, they probably should have just fired him, you know, and been like, hey, you know, there are circumstances in your life that we're sympathetic to, but you know, there's no, none of them are contribute to um, the a lack of clarity on what's appropriate to say to other people, particularly in a time where uh, we are recognizing that the challenges that women face, they're different than men in the workplace and in all aspects of, of, you know, sort of, of, of life in our society. And so to exploit those or, you know, to really, dig in and, and have a, a extremely misogynistic attitude towards this reporter is not something that I think that the president wants associated with his press messaging. Right. And, and so then that does sort of give free reign for the press to lean into that. Hey, you know, look at all these, we, you know, the press who, who exposed a lot of these bad actors and launched this me too movement. And so, you know, now we, if we're victimized by it, we're going to ring that bell loud and Olivia Nuzzi and others are always going to jump on those uh, type of things and amplify them uh, because there's a sense of empowerment that comes from the sort of collective reckoning that people are doing, um, you know, people of good conscience are doing in trying to, to think about how we treat women and in the workplace specifically. And so, I mean, I, it's almost like, how do you ascend to the level of a senior campaign official, a deputy press secretary, um, and have the capacity within you to make a comment like that to someone? I mean, 
I've never spoken a word like that to a woman in my personal or my professional life. And so, you know, the the fact of the matter is I'm sure he's, he'll land on his feet just fine. He'll probably find a higher paying job than uh, working in the public sector. And, uh, and we'll all all forget about this, but it should be a a lesson in general um, that there has, that the Trump was the aberration. He didn't reset necessarily what will be acceptable for everyone we allowed him to to change the standards that was acceptable from a president um from but only him specifically you know and uh also i think that there is this innate desire amongst the press in washington to um answer the sort of knock that was that has been coming mostly from the fox news universe and such which was that oh the press isn't even going to know how to cover joe biden because all they did was hate on donald trump and they're not going to hold him to the you know the standards that they claim they wanted to hold trump to and so whenever they can they have to try to prove that they have to say like oh look you know we're being tough on them we're not cozy up with them um you know so make no mistake that as with everything in the political discourse, the sort of um, the needling from the right causes there to be um, a sort of hyper sensitivity to that criticism amongst the press and then amongst, uh, you know, some on the left as well. Right. Well, I agree. And, you know, and uh, this is a learning experience for a young White House. Uh, Jen uh, yeah. uh, Psaki with a P is... Um, <laughs> is going is obviously this is new for her and if they don't learn then you keep holding them accountable and that's and, the that's the thing yeah. and do keep in mind the difference between what would have happened in the previous administration's white house and this i mean jen Psaki has given a press briefing every single day they've had numerous briefings with various members of the administration or right. uh, members of the coronavirus uh, uh task force or whatever they're calling themselves now and so um they open themselves up to these things where there has had been a run of four years where it's like if this kind of thing was going on they didn't really comment on it uh nobody would have anything to say about it you know because they didn't feel an obligation to have any level of transparency and although they did sort of misstep when it first started either with waiting for it to come out till after it was reported um or you know kind of the slap on the wrist punishment that was proposed um to your point hopefully they learn from this and hopefully those inside the White House learn from this as well, that like, you know, they have to be extra careful about their interactions with people uh, nowadays, because especially because it's easy to leak off the record conversations. It's easy to take a comment um, that is inappropriate and sort of allow that to overshadow everything else that a person is either trying to convey or trying to do. Um, so, you know, lesson learned, let's hope. Yeah, hope so. Okay, well, we're going to take a break and we'll come back and talk about, uh, what was it, the elephant in the room? No. Is that the best? Whatever. whatever. <laughs> we're going to talk about the impeachment uh, and uh, we'll be right back.
welcome back to CSG Podcast. Oh, CSG Politics. Well, you know, I know, I know the name of the thing that we're uh, we're doing right now. Um, <clears throat> it was a, ironically, I do not like generally the album that we uh, are playing two of our theme songs on. <laughs> I think we're playing the only two songs that I like on that album. I don't know how we ended up on No Line on the Horizon. This has been this has been bugging me. Hmm. Hey, the albums don't matter anymore. Everyone just buys songs or listens to individual songs. You know? Very true. Playlist. We live in a playlist world and a curated algorithm of of uh, music. Right. Well, at very least, it's the two best songs. Um, Speaking of curating, there was some uh, votes that were curated yesterday in the uh, Senate floor in a trial after the impeachment of one Donald John Trump. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I have many thoughts, most of which are contradictory, but I, I, I guess I want to hear from you first. After the Senate voted yesterday, 57-43 to acquit, well, that's the wrong way to frame it. 57 voted to convict, 43 voted to acquit. He was acquitted because you need 67 votes to uh, convict. So uh, because there wasn't sufficient votes, uh, ostensibly that means he was acquitted. Um, your baseline reaction after you saw the results of, uh, after the week long uh, trial that was conducted in the Senate yesterday by, our, our, uh, by the House managers. Well, um, it was always a foregone conclusion. Uh, there was never a moment where um, I don't think anyone seriously thought, oh, yeah, they, they, something could happen. And, and, you know, sort of intelligence and uh, honesty could uh, could guide um, 50 senators to uh, consider someone of their own party having done something um, worthy of conviction, uh, specifically something that they were victims of. So, right. you know, when all of those factors are put into play and then you realize there's no chance of conviction, then my first response was I couldn't believe they got up to 57. Right. Um, you know, I believe that's the most uh, senators from a, from a president's party to ever vote for conviction. Right. Um, it's unprecedented, unprecedented to be impeached twice. Um, those are stains. I mean, you know, we've seen three impeachments in our, in our, sh our short lives, Morty, um, right. two of them here in the past year. And, um, you know, the, the first one, um, you know, there's some, I guess, I mean, my opinion on it, I'm sure is obvious, but I mean, I guess there's some intellectual case to be made for not removal for conspiring with a foreign country in order to get up dirt on your political enemies. But this particular impeachment, you know, happened so quickly in the house because it was so obvious. It, it, it happened at the U S Capitol. And I, first of all, um, I salute the house managers. What um, it's almost like the first impeachment was a trial run. And this one was uh, put together. So effective. Um, uh, through the narrative that they they wove with the videos and and such, um, and uh, Representative Raskin, I think, is uh, history will be kind to him um, as a man who um, you know had a tragedy of losing his son just days before um, his attack before this attack on the Capitol, of which he was there with his his family um he gave a riveting 
case and uh and i think was superb uh our own uh, representative joe nagoose uh, i believe that's your congress no uh, Morty, is, right ed, no oh mine's, uh, ed perlmutter Oh, okay. Well, um, also a, a fine man, but mm -hmm. uh, Joe Neguse was universally lauded with everything that I said or yeah. saw. And, you know, there was all kinds of talk about how his future is bright in politics and, and just what a, what a great presentation he did. I believe the youngest uh, house manager has ever been. Um, and all, and all the others, um, they presented a compelling case and it, you could tell it was personal to them because it was something that they personally um, experienced. Now, yesterday morning when everything kind of got thrown for a loop and, and in the Senate, almost nothing happens that's unexpected. So when it does, it's sort of doubly shocking, um, you know, for there to be a vote to have witnesses and then not to have any witnesses, right. um, I think is an, an acknowledgement that it didn't matter what would happen. Um, they could call a hundred witnesses and it wouldn't sway another 10 Republicans and maybe you'd get two or three or four or five more at some point. But you know, in all the breaks during this impeachment trial, the jurors, such as Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham, would just cruise on over to the uh, to the president's lawyer's room and strategize with them. Right. Which you know, this isn't a criminal trial, so the rules are different. But you know, the the optics of it, and the reality of it, is it's ridiculous. And you know, for Lindsey Graham, who is one of the most spineless just fraudulent humans that I can think of mm -hmm. between going from like being John McCain's best friend and almost being a Maverick junior over there and not being a full on partisan at all times to being a hundred percent Trump sycophant to literally declaring after the insurrection that he was all done. He couldn't go along with this anymore to then being a part of the president's defense is just a disgusting uh, demonstration of the kind of human that he is and you know Ted Cruz is a garbage person for similar and other reasons as well um, and you know George Will has a column today about how you know if those people are going to be the future of the Republican Party then they're doomed and yeah. Yeah. that may be but it's going to take a long time for for them to ever pay any political consequence because they come from a uh, constituency in which they exploit of grievance and things like that um and so it's wildly disappointing that that is what the quote-unquote world's greatest deliberative body um is comprised of and uh i think that you know the, the, there was a lot of people hiding behind the constitutionality argument, which was ridiculous because there was a vote on it at first thing and the Senate acknowledged that it was constitutional. So even if you didn't vote for that, then like that's been sort of ruled upon. Right. So I see a lot of these sort of Republican, you know, second tier name ID type senators now uh, that didn't vote for conviction using that as their excuse that like, oh, yeah, what he did was terrible and, and this and that. But, you know, I don't think it's constitutional to try people out after they've left office. And that, of course, ignores the fact that uh, they got the impeachment articles before right. uh, he left office, that they had the majority in the Senate and could have started the trial right away. And that the likes of Mitch McConnell were saying at the time that this was, you know, inspired by the president and, you know, that he was essentially guilty of what he was later charged with by the House. But they couldn't, you know, summon the political courage or um, make a stand on principle. It was just a political calculation um, to just vote to acquit. But 
to summarize it, I hope this just puts a pin in us having to be worried about the Trump things. Um, I'm sure there'll be investigations and I'm sure there'll be news reports that come out that we didn't know about and things like that. And I, you know, I'm hoping that those things become more like gossip type <laughs> coverage and right. not necessarily defining the political conversation in Washington. Uh, because as far as I'm concerned, you know, Donald Trump is irrelevant now. Um, you know, they spent a lot of time in the Trump administration talking about how Obama did this and Obama did that. And uh, that's totally uh, unhelpful in trying to do anything. And I think that Joe Biden does set a good example by generally staying above the fray. He didn't have a lot to say about impeachment. I know he put a statement out. Um, <laughs> what was decided and his desire to like, you know, heal the soul of the country is, right. is his stated mission. And I, I think that that is where the, um, the focus should be. And that this was an important um, process for history and uh, definitely should be very damaging to, you know, the historical legacy that Donald Trump will have as we move forward. Um, and I hope that we take a lesson from this, that democracy is fragile and that we need to act in good faith and have our political differences be done within the confines of uh, sort of generalized respect for truth and, um, you know, maybe even a uh, an interest in an attempted bipartisanship when appropriate. But, uh, you know, I look forward to not having to think about Donald Trump anymore at all. Right. And uh, oftentimes that happens on inauguration day. Um, and this took a couple extra weeks, but uh, you know, let's, let's blaze forward here and see what we can, what can happen to, you know, put the pieces back together. You know, the, the way, this is the way I look at things that people are uh, some people I should say. And by the way, um, I don't, know how much people were actually paying attention. Um, and this is the, the re sad reality of it is that I, I think people, well, maybe not sad, but I think during a pandemic, people are more concerned about vaccinations, um, getting COVID relief bill, all of that stuff. They are far more narrow focused on what the, they, they themselves are. And um, I, think, I think that is a natural thing during a crisis term. Um, and we are in, certainly in, have been in a crisis for uh, a year now. Um, as far as the witnesses thing, which people are upset about, um, the best way I can look at it is in the Senate, one senator can basically be the crazy guy with the trigger on the nuclear device. And they can call for whatever they want and tie up things in perpetuity and basically torpedo every single bit of Joe Biden's agenda and it takes one senator one and uh, there was just no way they were going to get in uh, a bevy of witnesses because it's not that quote no one will let them it's that due to the arcane rules of the Senate and impeachment it's set up to where these you could you could do this process. The, the Clinton impeachment had witnesses. Um, the first Trump impeachment didn't. And this one had a statement, witness statement from uh, that representative who was uh, uh, exposed to the uh, Kevin McCarthy call, um, which was one of the more revealing thing about uh, aspects of this. And I think if I, what I would say is if people are gonna take anything away from this impeachment trial, it's that John, John Trump did not give a shit what was happening 
at the Capitol. Didn't give a shit. And that's what that McCarthy uh, um, interaction said. He didn't give a shit. All he cared about was his narrative and what was going on. And from many accounts, he was enjoying the riots. And I think if we are honest as a public, the biggest revelation was that John, Donald John Trump did not care about the governance of the United States. And in fact, sowed the seeds of chaos. And um, you would hope that this gets baked into the narrative Unfortunately, as I pointed out before, people are hyper-focused on vaccinations, their financial state, the fact that they can't leave the house, things like that. And I think it's hard to penetrate that rightfully. I mean, it's crisis right now. Um, but in a normal time where people weren't concerned about this, uh, I think it would have a much more lasting impact than it probably will. I'll be, I'll be well, disappointed to say. Well, Morty, that's dead on, but um, I think it all traces back to this idea of the kind of presidency and the way in which Donald Trump got elected to begin with, because, um, you know, I like to posit what I think is pretty much indisputable that if Hillary Clinton was the president, uh, there'd be a different pandemic response. There'd be a yeah. different um, set of realities, set of, of facts in our reality here. And so, you know, this whole thing is a construct of Donald Trump. And, you know, a lot of people in this country are perfectly fine with uh, members of Congress potentially being uh, harmed by insurrectionists because everybody likes their own congressman you know or you know the sort of adage goes that people like their own congressman but they hate congress and right. uh that's just sort of the intrinsic nature of a, a body that has to make decisions that affect people's lives and a lot of people are going to be put off by the way in which you know this that's that's sort of done um but you know donald trump took things to a different level by just his sort of insistence on chaos um you know you you go back to the the campaign comments of being able to shoot someone in the middle of fifth avenue and and nobody would uh would he wouldn't lose any support uh right. that was pretty accurate um you know one i mean ted cruz the aforementioned ted cruz you know was essentially excoriated by trump in the campaign in 2016 he attacked his wife he accused his father of being involved in the kennedy assassination and and cruz you know would talk about how trump was just a garbage person basically and then he's just doing his bidding for four years and you know, he's literally one of the chief insurrectionist leaders in the Congress, um, right. you know, along with uh, Howley and, and, and Graham. And so, you know, the, the, the truth is, is that there's always going to be terrible people that somehow get elected to office. Um, by and large, we'd kept them out of the White House until recently. And uh, oftentimes you'll find them in the House of Representatives, as we still do, uh, right. just because, you know, it's easy to like exploit the weaknesses of a district and be be a bad person and and get enough votes to get into office as we see with some of the freshman uh congress people this time around right. um but you know we're going to continue to pay for sort of the glitch in the system that allowed donald trump to get elected that allowed him to run an inside straight in 2016 to win the electoral college um that allowed a, a party in sort of such disarray and united only really by their opposition to anything that Barack Obama had done to run, you know, 20 plus people or, or whatever in the primary season and have all the top names falter real early. Um, it was a perfect storm and the damage from it uh, will be long lasting. And 
or we'll have to recommit. We'll have to make an actual conscious choice in order to prevent it from happening again, instead of previously having the luxury of just assuming that, you know, um, our better angels will emerge as the sort of classic American colloquialism describes. Um, And, uh, and that will take, people making hard decisions and it's hard for people like me to say that to other to you know those that were involved in the enabling of donald trump because you know i was opposed to him from the beginning and so i have trump derangement syndrome and i can't see things for how they are and you know he was a businessman and i mean you talk to people some even not necessarily extremist but just people that still support donald trump and they'll list off a litany of things that that he did that they find to be wonderful and so you know that's another reason why the the second impeachment was worth going through is because you know those things are on the record those things will be part of history and hopefully we'll learn from them um you know it's sort of imperative that we do well there's there's been this revisionist narrative that there hasn't been a businessman who's run for the presidency and won before this is not true uh the most famously jimmy carter was a very successful uh peanut farmer um who uh was very successful in georgia and put basically gave up all of his interests in his peanut farm because he didn't want that interfering what the difference is um here is that you have the most craven um m- me first everything I view is viewed through the lens of what I want uh, president in eight, well, since probably the late 1800s. And um, you had the, 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 I mean, I was going to bring up Chester A. Arthur and the, 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 uh, the gilded age of, uh, of ultra, ultra capitalism that happened. Um, But there's just, just there's there's all that that went on, and Donald Trump is that. My theory is that Barack Obama was the death knell for the Republican Party as we knew it. Um, their reaction to Obama completely, um, best way to put this, the reaction the Republican Party had to Obama and certain segments of America was began the, the, the cancer, which was eroding at the Republican Party. Um, it was, already wasn't great, but this was like their, their boogeyman. And it began eating and eating and eating. And Donald Trump, John, Donald John Trump was, the, was the inevitable coup de grace. And what you're seeing now is a party that is, in my view, a party that is aimless, has no idea, what it wants to be it is the faction of it is controlled by Donald Trump and you have, and, and if you look at it, uh, Pat, there is the percentage of people who wanted John or, or uh, Donald Trump convicted is reflected in those in, I mean, the public is reflected in the percentage of people who voted to convict him in the, in the Senate. It's roughly the right. same. Right. Well, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of outsized influences that the minority has or when the Republicans are the minority. Right. Um, they, they have a geographic advantage in the Senate. They have a sort of geographic advantage in the Electoral College where they don't have to appeal to the majority. You know, they don't have to get more people to support them than the other side. And, you know, to your point about uh, the businessman as president, I've been hearing that my whole life. We need to we need to run this country like a business. I mean, 
that if that bullshit isn't um, you know roundly rejected now, then I don't know what else you need to understand. The difference between running a government and a business are night and day. You know, government can't fire people; they can't remove things that are costly because they don't want to deal with them anymore. You know, they ha- they they have an obligation to look out for the protection and the interests of their citizenry. Businesses have none of those things, right. which is why you see sort of naked capitalism being so insidious in certain situations. And so now you've got a proof positive that, you know, you, you've seen a Republican Party go from nominating John McCain to Mitt Romney to Donald Trump, who excoriates both of those men who were held in such high esteem by their party through you know, John McCain specifically through a long career in federal government, he was, you know, it would be unthinkable to, um, to speak ill of him as a fellow Republican. As a matter of fact, most Democrats I know go out of my way to compliment him or, you know, um, talk about him being a remarkable individual. And so, you know, the idea that, um, that the party went from that to Donald Trump uh, really shows that they, you know, which part of the party they decided to lean into and, a lot of it was like an inactive sort of uh, a loud group of, of sort of people that describe themselves as being aggrieved. And, you know, I know that a uh, report came out last week that the majority of the people arrested in the Capitol insurrection didn't even vote. So it just, again, exposes the dishonesty of the argument of how they're not even using the machinations of democracy in order to make their voice heard. They're utilizing their grievance at what they view the other is, um, which they've labeled socialists and, you know, anti-Americans and all this sorts of things. Um, but then they're not, they can't even be bothered to freaking send their ballot in or go down to a polling place and vote for this leader that gets them to hop on a Greyhound bus and traverse the nation with their, uh, you know, military cosplay gear and, uh, and literally like violate federal law and the sanctity of the whole democratic experience. It's a, it's a, it's a revelatory and stunning insight into the psyche of what allowed this rise to power um, in this last administration. Well, I tell you what, if anyone needs to be excoriated, it's a guy who has six more years in office right now, but you pointed it out earlier. It's Lindsey Graham. Uh, and not as if Lindsey Graham had any virtue. Anyone remember his behavior during the Clinton impeachment uh, knows that the guy was uh, back then um, a disingenuous and craven a-hole. Um, and up to now, it is, it is even worse and the difference was when John McCain was alive, he had someone apparently who could moderate him. Um, now that uh, John McCain is gone, the, the, the real Lindsey Graham, the congressman, Lindsey Graham, is back. And uh, he is the worst example of Republicans. Uh, he, he and Josh Hawley are the worst, absolute worst examples of Republicans. Look, Mitch McConnell, I don't like. But Mitch McConnell is 100% upfront. He is all about retaining power. Everything he does is political calculus, period. You know who mm-hmm. Mitch McConnell is. He has been that his entire career. Lindsey Graham has vacillated from being a John McCain's best friend, a uh, uh, guy who was like willing to see both sides. Um, but he started his career as a reactionary guy who rode in on the anti-Clinton wave in 1994. And... Uh, he was that, 
moderated and himself a house manager and a house manager and gave one of the most disingenuous arguments for Clinton, impeaching Clinton I had ever heard. Um, and then uh, when McCain dies, he goes back to the way he was before. This is who uh, Lindsey Graham is. Yeah, he's a sycophant for power, you know? I mean, it's like he let, he launched, you know, he latched onto the Clinton impeachment and became, you know, this sort of uh, self-righteous moralizer in the, in a, during that experience. And then um, John McCain comes around and he hitches his wagon to his star and hopes to ride that all the way to, you know, um, defense secretary or uh, attorney general. Um, and then, you know, uses that to sort of, um, even after McCain was defeated in 2008, uh, uses their friendship to sort of elevate him from the, from the mass of just partisans, um, you know, and so he ostensibly played that role. Um, and then when Donald Trump calls around, you know, after initially like fully rejecting him, still using that cachet of, uh, of, of being associated with someone and held in high regard like John McCain, you know, so he excoriates Trump in the early days of the campaign. And then he becomes like his biggest enabler and like his best friend, you know, right. probably learned how to play golf just so he can go out with Trump, <laughs> you know? And then to, like I said, even in the past month to go from like talking about how he's out, he's all done. He can't be a part of this anymore to uh, sitting in the room, you know, um, with the, the president's attorneys, um, during the trial, I mean, the fact that that isn't offensive to his constituency, you know, I guess tells you what a tall order it'll be to ever to defeat him. But it also underscores how a lot of these people can be totally disingenuous. They can t be politically craven and pay no political price for it ever. And that includes Ted Cruz. That includes Mitch McConnell. That inc definitely includes Donald Trump. And so until those constituencies um, in, in, a, in a majority decide that good governance and all of the Republican calling cards of the 90s of personal responsibility and integrity and fidelity to the Constitution and morality and frankly Christianity are guiding principles, you know, I mean, those were all kind of exposed as a fraud. In, uh, in recent times, uh, but in, in, until at least one of those standards is is held to one of these types of uh, government officials through the election process starts to teach them lessons that there are political consequences for bad acts, then they'll just continue to be there. And they'll continue to be a situation where the U.S. Senate can have 57 people think that the President of the United States, the former President of the United States, should be convicted of an impeachment um, but that's not sufficient, you know? And so um, that's where we are and that's where we'll continue to be, uh, you know, for the foreseeable future in my calculation. And I think that that will be one of the hardest things to crack through is to get yeah. that element of dishonest public servant, so to speak, uh, in the extreme minority. Well, let's uh, kind of wrap up with this. Um, and this is going to be the hardest question. Uh, how can maybe we as a country get rid of Trumpism or how can the Republican Party get rid of it? Um, I kind of uh, subscribe to the same uh, view that others in the Democratic Party do. If you, if you have a dangerous and wounded Republican Party, it's a lot more, it's a lot more risky than having a just a strong yeah, we are ideologically opposed and we, we don't agree, but 
this is a strong party that at least has a certain set of values. Do you think that this is, is something that we are going to be dealing with for the foreseeable future? I do. I think the, if there's a short-term path back for them, um, it's going to come through like Mitt Romney. I think Mitt Romney will run for president in four years. Mm -hmm. um, and if he wins the primary, I think he would, I mean, who knows what the political calculus will look like at the time, but I think he would have a decent shot. Obviously he will. Whoever the Republican is going to have a decent shot to get elected in 2024. Right. Um, but I think that if, if it sort of throws back to that and gives cover to Republicans, casual Republicans, not necessarily hard partisans, to re-embrace that sort of roots of the Republicanism, lower taxes, less government spending, a lot more of the sort of social moral things that were a calling card of them through the, the nineties, you know, then I think that maybe you have a chance at a reset in certain instances um, when there can be repudiation amongst Republicans of their own that don't live up to the standards that they want. Um, and so I think that that is a long-term best case or a short-term solution to a long-term best case scenario. Um, but I also think that if Mitt Romney were to run for president in 2024, he'll face fierce opposition from a Trump wing, from a Ted Cruz, right. from a Josh Hawley, from these people that, you know, have have seen their stars rise because they were able to get involved in this politics of grievance that Trump exploited. And so that will be a challenge that they have to fight. I think Democrats almost just need to stand on the sideline and work on building our own party to be as yeah. inclusive as possible, to be competitive in places. Um, one main difference as we look back to this election, last election is that, you know, Joe Biden went and fought in places that uh, weren't necessarily um, places we would have thought, such as Arizona and Georgia. Well, Hillary Clinton did not do that in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Yeah. And so the lesson learned there is that the Democrats, you know, we have a, a numbers majority in this country uh, that continues to be proven in presidential elections. Um, but we have a map both in Electoral College and in the Senate and in the gerrymandered House that give us uh, a disadvantage each time. You know, it's like we're starting with a with a handicap. And mm -hmm. so um, it's going to be the type of thing where I believe that the Democrats just need to focus on their own party, building it out as much as possible, attract, you know, holding on to the suburbs, um, being prepared for the likes of a Nikki Haley um, I don't know if you saw the article, I believe it was in Politico this week, where she's, you know, totally trying to rehab her image. Um, but the reality is that she's just been malleable to the political winds her entire career, you know, started with Mark Sanford, all the way up to Donald Trump. Right. Um, and so uh, we're going to have to just, you know, keep our eye on the ball there. And instead of running against individuals on the Republican side, continue to grow um, our opportunities with uh, people that find value in, in, the stated principles of the Democratic candidates and the Democratic Party. And we need to rise above the inclination to try to play the same game. You know, we need to hold our, our guys accountable for the things that they do. And, um, and then hope for the best, because I do subscribe to the idea that a, a strong Republican Party um, that can engage in good faith in, uh, in areas where agreement and compromise is needed is sort of crucial to the confidence in the system by the public. Right. Um, 
and and right now that's kind of split on partisan lines but it hasn't always been like that it doesn't have to be like that um so i hope that there are people in areas of deliberation that take that seriously and i think part of it um, will include joe biden being uniquely qualified for this moment to be the american president and as he moves forward and the star of donald trump fades from day-to-day -day conversation um and we can evaluate the real world actions that joe biden makes to achieve his goal his stated goal of healing the soul of the nation of being the president for everyone regardless of the color of their state or whom they voted for um will hopefully be part of that reset of, of thinking that is attractive to the american middle right. um which needs to be rebuilt i agree completely and you know what i can't top what you just said so i think this is a good stopping point <laughs> uh, once again uh, for CSU Politics, uh, shout out to David Hudson, our, our most faithful and consistent uh, uh, listener. Um, I'm always impressed with Pat's knowledge. Um, he is. So, uh, uh, Mr. Garen, uh, you do have definitely have a fan out there, someone who <laughs> Thank appre you. appreciates your, uh, your, your knowledge and all this stuff. I have the benefit of knowing Pat for a very, very, very long time. So uh, I can I can take his knowledge for granted. So um, <laughs> uh, so oh, fantastic. All right. So ever thank you all for joining us. Uh, uh, we uh, have been skipping weeks lately, haven't we, Pat? We've uh, we've been a little inconsistent, you know. Uh, we have, but we got we'll we'll get it dialed in, and, and, and as needed, you know, if big things happen, you know, this is we'll, true. Uh, we'll be here to talk about them. And shout out to Tim Miller, um, if you're listening to this, Tim. Uh, uh, we'll have to have you on the actual politics show uh, with uh, my co-host here next time. So um, anyway, thank you all for joining us, and uh, we'll be seeing you soon. Goodbye.